The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with comedian David A. Arnold. Arnold has been in the comedy game for close to three decades. He's been grinding, doing stand-up, as well as writing and producing comedies for television. His popularity really started to grow during the height of the pandemic. He's becoming one of the nation's hottest comedians, in part because his brand of comedy is deeply rooted in his life story, and that includes his family life. This is from his latest Netflix special, it ain't for the week. Oh, and by the way, this interview contains some language that is definitely adult and may be offensive to some. First of all, these, these new kids, they the most entitled group of people that I've ever met in my life. You hear me? But here's the thing. I know they like this because we made them like this. My kids is like, because everybody wants to do better for their kids than they think was done for them. Then I thought about, I was like, I came up pretty good. So what the fuck is the goal here? What am I trying to do? <laughs> this is how I know that I'm doing too much. My daughter, Anna Grace, just turned 16. She calls me and said, I want to talk to you. <laughs> I ain't never said no shit like that to my father. Matter of fact, I prefer we didn't talk, to be honest with you. She's like, I'd like to talk to you. I'm turning 16. I want to talk to you about the type of car 
I'd like. <laughs> I want to hear what you think you got coming. She said, I've had my eye on the G-Wagon. What the fuck do you think is happening around here? That a G-Wagon is anywhere in your future. You understand? What makes you think you go get a $100,000 car? Julie normally defends everything these kids say. Julie heard this, this pissed her off. She came out the back like, hold up, I'm him and I ain't got no G-Wagon. You definitely not getting no G-Wagon. You're getting a 98 Corolla, get the out of here. I'm finally at that place where you busy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. for, I've been doing this for a long time. And somebody was saying that to me, they're like, man, you just going, a TV show, the tour. All this other stuff, and I'm like, yeah, man, it ain't it ain't time to be sleep. This ain't the time to be sleeping. Right, right. You know, it, it, it's interesting you say that because so many people have found you in the last few years. But I mean, you've been yeah. out here two plus decades. Yeah, I've been doing stand up for 28 years. I've been writing television professionally and producing television for 15. So yeah, man, I've been out here for a minute, and it's and it and, you know it's funny to watch people go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just found you and. You know, you have so much material and I'm going, that's what happened when you've been working underground for 28 years and ain't nobody been paying attention. And now all of a sudden they're like, where you get all this? I'm like, I just been working. I've been working. I've been grinding and working every day. How much of you coming from Cleveland has to do with that grind? I remember years ago having a conversation with Barry Gordy. Yes. And people said to him, hey, man, what was it in the water in Detroit? He said, no. He said, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland. In the winter, you got to go to work before you go to work. You got to shovel that driveway. <laughs> you got to get out here. How much of the Midwest <laughs> mentality comes into play there, you think? Um, you know what? I would like to, I would love to be able to say that, you know, I, obviously I'm from Cleveland, so I understand exactly what he's talking about. But I grew up with, you know, three men that were very influential in my life. And I saw that my grandfather owned an asphalt company when I came up in Cleveland and he only worked during the summer because asphalt, as you know, mm -hmm. was laid in the summertime and in the winter, you know, he had to make all his, all his money in the, in the summer and save it to get through the winter. But I watched this man work every single day. And I think that's where I got my work mentality from him and my dad and my, and my stepfather between those three dudes. I just saw people who, they just worked. That's what you did. You just worked, you know? And yeah, of course, I remember shoveling snow. I remember the snowblower. I remember all of that stuff. That's why I live in LA now. I have no desire <laughs> to be a part of none of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yes, that's where it comes from. It comes from, it comes from, it, it is a Midwest thing, but I, you know, I, I give my work ethic and my credit up to that, to my, to my, uh, to my dad and my, my dad and my stepfather, and my grandfather. Let me ask you about um, the pandemic and what it did for you, because so wow. many people found you yeah. on Instagram when yeah. we were all just sitting at home. Yeah. It's, sense of how you view that now. <laughs> you know what? It's the pandemic was so bad for so many people for so many reasons. And for me, it was the complete opposite. Um, I, my, I had a Netflix special, an independent one that I did, my very first one called Fat Ballerina. I put that, I put that Netflix special up and it came up, it came out the week of the pandemic, the week we got shut down, it was posted up on Netflix. And obviously everybody was doing nothing for the first month, but watching Netflix. You know what I mean? And they watched all the people they knew 
And then they got down to me and was like, let me see what this little light skin curly head, do. you know what I mean? And they, and they watched the special and it was funny. I had been posting video content on Instagram and social media, Facebook a year before that, maybe a year and a half before that. And I actually started to build a strong following. But when the pandemic came again, everybody turned their attention to their devices. So they just started looking and I was there. So when it, when it, when everybody shut down, I was, I, I had a presence. So people started finding me and I knew that everybody was going to be at home or looking in their phone more. So I laid into that thing every single day. And it just, it just caught like wildfire, man. I mean, for those who saw the last special and certainly have followed you, you yeah. integrate your family so much. Yeah, you. I don't know anyone who's done it as well as you since Bernie Mac. Uh, you know. Oh wow! Thank you. Yeah, man. I remember talking to Bernie about whether or not he has to kind of go to the folks beforehand, or do nah. they just know you along <laughs> for the ride? <laughs> yeah, no. Nah. Ain't no. Ain't no. Ain't no getting permission for nothing. Like this, <laughs> this is, and I, and I remember when I first started posting videos with my wife and kids in it. Like I remember my wife, the first time I started recording something that was happening in the house, she's like, why are you recording this? I said, because I need people to see what I'm going through in here because I know I'm not the only one. And she was like, well, this is not funny. And I was like, oh, it's funny, sister. And I started posting the videos anyway with my commentary around them. And I started, she started seeing the comments. She started seeing and the next thing you know, it just blew up. My kids started to read it and they started to realize, oh, we, we, cause my wife, I have a video of my wife going, we're not funny. <laughs> like we're not, there's nothing funny about us. And I, she's like, we're real, but we're not funny. And I was like, but that's what's funny. Yeah. And I, so I know I don't, I've never asked for permission. My family has known who I am from the beginning and you know, everything I post, you know, none of it is staged. It's really, unless we're doing a skit of some sort, but right. most of it is just us in the moment really being who we are. So it really is the antithesis of what we all try to do, though, Dave. And that's the idea of putting that Facebook, Instagram life up front and trying to keep the real shit behind. Yes, right? exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, we're, and we are the complete opposite of that. Like, if you see me, in my, if you see my page, my hair don't be done. I be looking crazy at the time. My wife be looking like shit. Sometimes, like we both be, we both be out of there. But people relate to that because it's real. It ain't me trying to create a, you know, a, 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 a curate. My page is not curated. My page is caught in the moment, real life. And I think that's the reason why it's resonating with people so much because it's how we look when we at the crib. It's how we look when we just chilling. Like my, Boris and Nicole, Kojo, very good friends of mine. Okay, right, love them to death. Good when phone. I tell yeah. you, these, they page is the most, like, <laughs> like they, they on vacation with drone shots and shit. I said, how the hell you got a drone camera on vacation? Like, like why you just, why can't get a video of y'all two waking up in the morning and don't look like you've been through hair and makeup? Like, they, that's, but that's their brand. You know what I mean? Me and Julie, we Midwest, my wife from Indianapolis. You know what I mean? Her father was, you know, an a NBA legend basketball player. You know what I'm saying? We just, we come from a different, we cut from a different cloth. We just different, you know, we just different people. We just real. That's who we are. What about when you have to decide, though, that because that is who you are, mm -hmm. there are things that 
I'm sure you had to think about whether you okayed it with others or not. Mm -hmm. You had to think about whether or not, particularly when you you talk about your mom, yeah, uh, you know, your stepfather or your father, whomever. Yeah. um, What do you gauge? What do you say? I'm gonna keep this one. I I don't know that there's been anything yet that I've come up on that I feel the need to talk about. There's never been a time that I go, oh, I want to talk about this. Oh, maybe I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. There's not been a subject that's come up yet because I've talked about me. I've talked about being sober. If you saw my, my, my last Netflix special, it ain't for the week. I go through all of my life and, you know, I, I've not had that moment yet where I feel like this is off limits you know what i'm saying like i because most of the stuff that i talk about is my journey and these people that are around me in my life my dad my stepfather my grandmother my wife my husband, you know all that's they are they are a part of my life but it's still my perspective and it's my journey and it's my story that they are connected to and i remember like the first time i told i started doing a bit about and i did this in fat ballerina where i tell the story about how i found out that who I thought was my biological father my whole life was not my biological father. And I tell the story about meeting my biological father. Well, I'd started doing that joke 15 years ago. And I remember the first time I did it at the improv in Cleveland and my, and my parents had come out to see me perform and they brought all their little friends, right? And my, after the show, my mother came up to me. She's like, your dad is a little upset that you did this joke about, you know, and I was like, okay. So I talked to dad and I was like, mama said you were upset. He was like, you know, I had friends here. I just didn't expect you to do that. You gotta, and I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, did I say anything that was not true? And he said, no. I said, I'm going to tell my story. I said, I want to be good at this. I want to be one of the best at this. And I cannot do it if I'm not allowed to have my truth. And he never said anything else to me again. And I wrote the joke in the story in a way to turn it back, to honor him and who he is. You know what I'm saying? And now we, I, I think that was a growing pain. One of the biggest ones I had, you know what I mean? For me and doing what I do, but my family, they have not, my wife has never come to me. I don't like that joke. Those jokes you're doing about, you know, side bitches and all that. We never had none of those kind of conversations because mm-hmm. I, I, re- I, I protected my creative space. I was doing stand-up five years before I met my wife. And I tell my friends now who do stand-up that call me, man, my wife was like, why are you doing that joke? I had to tweak that joke so she not, man, fuck that. I'm not doing any of that. That's my space. I deserve and have the right to tell my story. And that's what I've always protected. So I've been lucky that the people around me have not been yeah. in, that, in that way. I really have. What I loved about, and I hit you just as soon as I finished watching the latest special, I hit you up and said, brilliant, man, because right. you you not only introduced us to the people in your life, but you had yeah. the foresight to actually introduce us to them <laughs> that we got to yeah. see them and meet them after the fact. Because too yeah. often, I think we tell these stories, comics tell these stories, yes. and you wonder who these people are in real life. We got to meet them. When did you decide that was the best way? We, um, you know, when we first pitched the idea, I had a, I had another executive producer that was attached to this program, to this special, as well as Kevin Hart is. And I'm not going to say who they are because they pulled their name off of it because mm-hmm. of some of the content that I did that they felt like they should not be on it. But we are great friends. They are one of the biggest black producers in the, in, in the business. And it was their idea to, uh, 
to basically go, we should do a thing where we meet your family. And it was a talk of maybe we do the stand up and then show some of the stuff in between. And then as we kept going down a project, we're like, uh, I don't want to break up the flow of the stand up to go break. You know, that break. So let's do it after. So if from the top, it became a discussion. And because people knew me from social media and my wife and my kids and my mom had already had a face on my page. We were like, this would just be organic for my fans who already know me from social media to get a chance to see further into my life. So that's why we did it. And we put that, we tagged that little 18 minute documentary at the end of the hour of stand up. And it's been received crazy. It's been really, it's been received really well. I mentioned uh, Bernie Mac at the outset. Would you consider, have you considered, are you looking at the idea of doing what Bernie did and try to do a sitcom based oh man on- i've i've this is i've three times i've already tried to do it mm-hmm. and i've been rejected and told that you know for what one reason or another the first mm-hmm. the last one of the times i was told um by bet at the time i started developing this show at hulu and then it ended at bet which was this was about four years ago and they basically said i was not marketable i did not look like what a black man looks like if the black audience would respond to me as a black man and all that you know and that shit angered me and it hurt me you know especially when black people invalidate your blackness because i'm light skinned and i got curly hair and i might look dominican so dark skin you know and the, all the women who work at the office at BET is, you know, they all dark skinned women. They got this con, like, it's just a bunch of shit. And I just, it pit, and I, a lot of people are like, you shouldn't say it who these people, you shouldn't identify. Fuck that. I'm going to call they When I get my BET award, which they will give me, I'm going to let them know who they are. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to call their names out because it was them that motivated me to start posting online to start doing the things that I did. When they said I wasn't marketable, I had 1,200 followers. And I started posting in videos and then rants and the things. And I went from that to over a million now on all my platforms. And I have this strong social media. So the answer is, yes, I want to do a show. We're in the middle of doing it again now. You know, right now, Hollywood, from what I'm being told is, oh, Hollywood's looking for the office comedy now. They're not looking for family. You know, it's always time yeah. again. You know, yeah, it's it business. Yeah. It's this business. So. You know, three, five years ago, it was, I wasn't marketable. Now two Netflix specials later and millions of followers. Now that what they say is, oh, they're looking for, Hollywood's looking for the next Abbott Elementary, the new, you know, they're looking for works. But I'm going to continue to, we're out right now meeting with the showrunners to develop another family sitcom based on me and my point of view. So the answer is yes. And I will get there because that is my, that's always been my goal. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Arnold is not afraid to explore those corners of life that most would want to keep in the dark. That includes his years of addiction to drugs and alcohol. I don't believe that there is a stereotypical kind of, but Mm -hmm. there are those who will say that you don't Mm -hmm. fit the stereotype for an Mm -hmm. addict. Yes, 100%. Oh, absolutely. That was one of my biggest problems of being on drugs. Like I said in my spot in my yeah. special, I don't look like I'm on drugs. I don't look like like and so I would try to buy drugs and, and, and you know, and the dope man was like, nigga, you ain't no goddamn, you don't get your ass out of here. You know what I mean? They thought I was an undercover cop. That was true. I had to, I had to push against the nor like what was naturally given to me to be on drugs. You know what I'm saying? It's always like when I see 
I don't know if you've ever seen people that are overweight, but they got real skinny legs. <laughs> like they got, they like the only, only they waist <laughs> up is just, they out of shape, but they legs. Mm-hmm. This to me are people whose they frame and they life was not meant to be like that, but they pushed against it to do and be who they want to be. I had to do that to be on drugs. I natu- I didn't come from that. You know what I'm saying? I didn't, I, I, that was not my destiny obviously. So it was hard for me to be on drugs because, you know, the lifestyle of a drug addict was not the lifestyle that I was good at. And so, you know, when I got sober 24, 20, 24 years ago now, um, you know, it was, I, I knew that the, there was other things for me to do. I felt like that was something that I was emotionally addicted to. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. when I worked on that, it changed, but yes, I did not. It was, it was ridiculous. It was comedic almost. So for uh, you, so for you, you think it was more an emotional addiction than a chemical addiction? I 100% do because I never as much cocaine as I did and as much weed as I was drinking as I, I was, I never went through, when I went to rehab, I never went through withdrawals. I never had any physical, like, you know, never, never had it, which I saw that when I went to the VA in Westwood in LA and I got sober for the third time and I was in rehab. And I remember seeing people go through physical withdrawal. Like, you know, I never had any of that. And what I did know was emotionally, I was locked up on that because I was, you know, just didn't want to deal with whatever feelings that I had that I was, you know, pushing through to try to figure out. But yeah, I never, I I did, I never, I've never had any of that. So what, what changed? What changed for you? I got tired of being tired. I got tired of pushing against what was naturally trying to come my way, which was this life that I'm living. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I grew up, I grew, I, like I said, I grew up, as far as I'm concerned, I grew up around greatness. My grandfather and my, and my dad and watching, you know, watching these men around me work and just be, it, 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 it was not w- what I was supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? Like I was, and I just needed to get up and answer the call is what it was. And that's why being in this business and the rejection and the bullshit and the lies and all, it don't bother me. Like when you've been on drugs and you've been down there, you can't hurt my feelings. When they, when you tell me, you will make me mad. When you tell me I'm not black enough or I'm not this or I'm not, you'll make me mad, but you're not going to break me. You're not laughing when I'm on stage. I don't give a fuck about you not laughing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you you understand? Like, I've been through it. You're sitting there with an attitude because you don't even want to come here. You know what I mean? Like, none, none of that stuff bothers me. This business, the shit, I'm very honest in this business. You know, I'm running a TV show right now. I'm a showrunner of a TV show I created for uh, me and Will Packer that I created for Will Packer at Nickelodeon. And I'm not good at Hollywood. I'm not good at, you know, they very sugarcoat stuff. Yeah, we think it's great. We just, you don't think it's great. You think it's bad. So just say you think it's bad so I can move on. I'm, that's who I am. And it's not received well be, sometimes because I'm just a real honest individual. And that's how I move through this business. I don't quit. You know what I mean? And I'm at the age, you know, I'm 53 years old now, you know? And so like, Everybody goes, all this, all this stuff is coming to you. But yeah, I see it for what it is now. I don't, I'm, I'm not seduced by the attention. I'm not, because I have so much further to go. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I have so much further to go. I have so much more that I want to do. This is not the time for me to have no ego. I'm performing at the comedy zone. 
Okay. I'm not at the, I'm not at the, I'm not at the Madison square garden. That's mm-hmm. where I'm trying to get to. I'm not there yet. You know? So I don't get beside myself by no means because I have so much more work to do. One of the things that I think people don't know, you mentioned it uh, a few moments ago is the idea that mm-hmm. you have produced and written television yeah. shows. You talk about yes. that girl Lele for Nickelodeon. Yes. You were mm-hmm. also a part of uh, Fuller House. How did that yes. come how did that connection come? Uh, Fuller House came about because um, I worked on, I, I worked, I get Fuller House. I think it was from Bob, yes, it was. It was from Bob Boyette. Miller Boyette was a big production company that was famous for uh, Friday night um, television when they had um, uh, Family Matters and Full House. And when, when they were dominating the air in the 90s, Miller Boyette, Bob Boyette, was a you know he's a very successful producer. Well, he did a TV show with Martin and Kelsey Grammer called Partners. That was a ten episode thing that they did on FX. You know, like t- I don't remember when it was. Maybe 2010, 11, I maybe thirteen. I don't remember. But I got that job because I had written. This is when everybody was trying to do these ten ninety shows, shoot ten and then pick up ninety on the back end because that's what Tyler Perry had done with mm-hmm. House of Pain and Meet the Browns. I came from Ty- I wrote, my first job was House of Pain and Meet the Browns, and I learned how to write and produce TV over there. Then they hired me in Hollywood to do this Miller Boyette production, and then they went on to do Fuller House. So when they did Fuller House, he immediately called me and he remembered me from that show, and that's how I landed full. That's how I landed Fuller House. One of the only black writers in that very white. I was going to ask you about that because that's very unique. You know, when you talk about television, I think some people would be dumbfounded to walk into a writer's room or a table table read and see, you know, the one Negro that is allowed in. If that, if that, if that, if that, yeah, it's, it's, you know, yes. And it was so funny. This is what's crazy about that. At the time when I did season two, I did season four and five of Fuller House. They did five seasons. I did the last two. Uh, because I was working on other stuff and I wasn't available. And the first I was writing Real Husbands of Hollywood with Kevin Hart. But I remember being at Full, Fuller House. And I was also working on a BET show with Will Packer called Bigger. That was on BET+. Plus. We did two seasons over there. And I was driving from the Bigger writer's room, which was all black, op- mm-hmm. up from, from Paramount up to Warner Brothers, to write in the Fuller House room, which was all white. Mm-hmm. And I would go between these two worlds. Yeah, I, you know, and I when I was driving one day, it reminded me of when my, you know, my parents got divorced when I was six. And my mother married my stepfather, who was a music producer, and he started the OJs. So we lived up in an all-white Jewish neighborhood in Cleveland, Ohio. And my dad still lived in the house that I came from when I was six, which was in the hood for all intent and purposes. And every weekend I would go from my dad's house from the hood back to my house in the, in, you know, in the all white Jewish neighborhood. And I did this every, I would go back and forth between these two worlds. And when I was driving from Paramount, from the BET set to the Fuller House set, it just reminded me of my life and how I could always toggle between these mm-hmm. two spaces and exist and be good at both of them. You know what I mean? And funny is funny. Funny is funny. Funny, funny is funny. And it cuts through. The way we talk about it might be different. But white people got families. They got kids that they sick of. Just like, like we might deal with them different. But funny is funny. And I think that's why my audience is so wide. 
Funny is funny, but there are cultural comedy differences. 100%. Absolutely. Often, because we toggle between the worlds, we can get white comedy, but white folk can't always get black comedy. They cannot, because ours is Ours is drenched in history. It's drenched in, like you said, it's drenched in the way that we just do things. You know what I mean? Like it's a whole, it's a different language. It's a different rhythm, you know? And yeah, one, and that is the, that is the thing that as a comedian, as a writer and a storyteller, I'm very good at finding the space. I know what buttons to put when I can look in the audience and I can see, oh, this room is predominantly this or that. I know exactly what buttons to lean on or what words to punch, what words to throw away. Like I've been doing this long enough that I can I can dance between both those words very well. Who were your influences coming up comedically? Oh my gosh. Coming up was Richard Pryor, obviously. You know, uh, it was Bill Cosby. Um when I got older. And I, George Carlin, when I got older and I started to see stand up, like the first time I ever saw stand up was Eddie Murphy's uh, Delirious with mm-hmm. the red suit. And I remember I was probably 10 at the time and I came home. No, I came to my aunt's house. Me and my mom went over to my aunt's. And all the adults were in the basement where they were always at, you know, smoking weed and talking shit and laughing, right? Mm-hmm. And we'd walk in the house and they was in there screaming. Oh, I was laughter. And I was like, What's going on? And my, my aunt yells to my mother, Barbara, come down here and look at this little boy on TV talking shit, right? So we all go downstairs, right? And Eddie is on stage murdering. I don't know what he's talking about because I'm not there mm-hmm. yet to be able to listen and lock in. All I know is I see a man in a box <laughs> telling stories and making the people laugh that normally are cussing me out, (laughs) having these people uncontrolled. Like that was the first thing that made me go, what's this? And then later on, I saw D.L. Hughley do stand up. And when I was in the Navy and that made me go, I think I can tell these stories. I think I got some funny stories to tell. Just like my grandfather told stories. I was like, I can tell these stories like my grandfather told me. And that's, so my grandfather was one of the biggest comedic influences in my life. He wasn't even a comedian. So those were my those were my pivotal moments. It was Bill and Eddie when I was I mean Bill and Richard when I was a kid. It was Eddie Murphy that made me realize that something in Dio Hughley made me realize oh I can do this. Let me ask you in in relation to where you sit on a debate that goes on and on, and that is the idea of black comedy. I'll put that in quotes. Mm-hmm. And whether or not we have for too many generations just gone to the lowest common denominator for funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm of the belief that you can't legislate funny to whomever's sitting in the audience. If they think it's funny, it's funny. If they don't, that's right. But I understand the debate. You can't invalidate anybody's experience, you know. And because you went to school and read a few books, and now you want to hear something cleverly put together, because <laughs> to meet my expectation, you know, listen to what you think is funny. But there's people who think that government cheese and 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 mm-hmm. and, and forty out. They they that's they, there's some people's reality every day, and right. they think that shit is funny. You know what I mean? The roaches in the corner. You ever go to a girl's house and there's roaches on the wall, and you're like, "Bitch, I'm a fuck anyway." You know these roaches on the like that. Listen, <laughs> that is funny, and if it's funny, and your audience is buying tickets to see you tell the roach on the wall joke. You can't, you can't, you can't criticize 
a man who's selling out wherever he's selling out, doing whatever it is he does. You know what I'm saying? That's the, the good, here's the thing. There is no one, there does not have to be one bucket of comedy, one well that we all pull from. That's not real. Everybody, that's why there's a thousand comedians. So you can see who you want to see. And if you want to hear what they call low-hanging fruit, and that makes you laugh, then go see who you want to see. And if you want to hear some quote-unquote elevated comedy, I don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. You go listen to the people who speak to what your reality is. But you can't make people like what you like. I I think that's just people who ain't got shit to do talking. It ain't for the weak. Uh, you know, yeah. I loved when you started yeah. out, at least when I started out, when I saw you, is yeah. um, when you were posting and you say, yeah. you know, go get yourself a family. Yeah. And that's and it's true. Like anybody who's anybody who's with the gauntlet, who's done time. I say this and I made my special this. And then my, my Netflix special is called it Ain't for the week because anything worthwhile is not for the week. It ain't going to be easy. It ain't going, and I say this on stage even now, it ain't going to be easy. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to make you want to quit. It's supposed to make you want to go, why did I do this? Being married for long, anybody who know anybody who's been married for years, it ain't, it ain't for the week. It ain't easy. Zero to 18 months, that's where everybody dance at. (laughs) Zero to two years, anybody can do that shit. That's the, that's playtime. So I, you don't get no credit from me for being with somebody for two years. You, of course you've been there two years. You ain't done shit. Like kids, kids are, gr- oh my God, the baby. Look at the baby. Oh, the baby. Look at the, let these little motherfuckers grow up. <laughs> let them grow up and start telling you what you don't know. And you done gave it. None of these things are for the faint of heart. They not for the weak. And that's the reason why I said, I, you get a wife. That ain't for the weak. Getting a husband. Ain't for the week. Like it ain't women deal with our shit. Like they're women way stronger emotionally than we are. Way stronger than we are emotionally. You know what I mean? Women deal with niggas coming home with a whole nother family and still stay there. You think that's for the week? That ain't for the week. That ain't for the one who goes, I can't do this. Your credit's not good. I can't be with you. I gotta, I have to go. <laughs> like, <it's rough. laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like you like that nobody nobody knows until you've done it and you really run the gauntlet of all the the gamut of everything it's it ain't for the weak man and this journey of doing what i'm doing it has not been is not been for the weak but i've never had one time that i've ever thought about quitting never once so that takes me to the last question i've heard you a number of times talk about the journey and it's yeah. over and you've got yeah. a lot more to do. Yeah. What's the end of the road? And by that, you know, I, I know people don't like to think about, particularly when you love what you do, the end, but there is, you know, yeah, the yeah. End of your driveway, you make it home, you're satisfied. What is that for you? Um, this is what I will say. Lately in the last couple of years with the success that I've had and and, and just what I've had now, I've learned to. I'm learning to stop and start enjoying the things around me that I do have. My daughters are 15 and 17. I try to spend more time with them and really lock in with them because they're, you know, a few years out from going out and to do their own thing. 
spend more time in locking in with my wife, trying to do things that I enjoy, right? Because I do, I still, like I said, I still want to do, I still want, I'm still going to do a sitcom. I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. I know that's going to come my way. I don't know how long I'm going to do it, but I know I'm going to do it. And then I would get a chance to tour. If I don't, if I can just tour and people come to see me, every time my name goes up on a marquee, that would be cool. But the end for me is being in a place where I, I'm okay. I've made an incredible living doing what I love to do, which is a blessing because most people do not get a chance to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think the end for me is just being comfortable with the things that I have done and being happy with the fact that I've made a great living and taking care of the people around me, you know what I mean? Doing what I love to do in a way that I was, that was even better than I was, you know, raised in some areas. Well, look, man, I told you when we first talked, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I appreciate it. I, I was so doing. shocked. I was so shocked. I was like, this ain't, this can't be the right same person. And I looked at the page, I texted my wife, I said, I screenshot your page. I, like, I think somebody catfishing me. This ain't right. This came like you. You never believe. You never think you could be around long enough to get a chance to see somebody who you watched work and be great at what they do. Like I watched you work. So like when you hit me, I was like, really? <laughs> I just, you know, because you just, we work inside a vacuum. Yeah. You don't know who's watching. You don't know who you're resonating with so when you hit me up you were like i would love to talk it was one of the like this has been one of the i i'm just i'm humble man i really really appreciate you i respect your journey i respect the things that you've done and you know i'm i'm honored that i've done anything that made you go hey man i want to talk to you another big thanks to david check out his netflix special it ain't for the week And look for him on tour to find out when he's coming your way. Go to his website at davidarnold.com. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.